Hello, and thank you for joining us for another installment of Grasping Scripture. Today, we'll begin studying Paul's letter of 1 Timothy. That is a letter he wrote to Timothy, who was uh, in leadership or serving as pastor of the church at Ephesus. Paul had sent him there on his behalf to try to straighten out some issues that had developed in the church. I thank you for joining us today as we prepare to look at the first chapter of 1 Timothy together. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, again we thank you for the many blessings that you have given us, greatest of which is the opportunity to know you and to be in right relationship with you, our sins forgiven and atoned for through the sacrifice of Christ. Father, as we turn our hearts and our attention to your word, help us to hear the message you have for us in these pages and found in these words. Lord, speak to our hearts by your spirit, convicting us of those areas that we need to repent of and and follow you. And Father, we seek your forgiveness for those areas in our lives. Lord, take us and use us for your glory and your kingdom. And as we study your word, help us to know you better, to follow you better. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, as we turn our attention to 1 Timothy, there are some things we need to get out of the way as far as background, and those would pertain to when it was written, who wrote it, where it was written from, why it was written, and things of that nature. So let's look at some of those issues. First off, is written by the Apostle Paul. It's very evident within the text that he was the one that wrote it. Now, where was Paul when he wrote this? We're not sure. We think it was written probably about A.D. 63, and Paul would have been visiting the churches in Macedonia, very likely in Philippi, when he wrote this particular letter. This would have been just prior to Paul's uh, arrest and second imprisonment at Rome, which ultimately led to his martyrdom. But as we look at these passages, what we see is that Paul is not just writing to encourage Timothy. Sometimes we read this and we think, oh, he's just trying to encourage Timothy. Timothy was timid. But this is a peculiar type of letter from the first century world. Most of Paul's letters are a more familiar type of letter. Most of his epistles in Scripture are written in a standard Greco-Roman letter format where there's a a blessing and a greeting and everything at the beginning. There's also a blessing and well-wishing for health and prosperity at the end, and it follows a standard form. Well, Timothy does that, but it's a little bit different in that it follows the form of a different type of letter. The type of letter it follows, and forgive my Latin here because Latin's not my thing, uh, mandatum principis. That means the commandment of a ruler. This is a specific type of letter that a ruler or a, a, an authority figure would write to one of their underlings, and it was written intentionally to be read by or to the underling, but also in the presence of those that were under that delegate. 
in other words, I would send somebody to manage my affairs somewhere. I would write this type of letter. And as they read that type of letter, it would be read out loud, not just to the person that's managing my affairs, but all the persons under them. And the reason being, it makes it clear for everybody. If you will, everyone is, well, so to speak, on the same page. It became clear to Timothy what Paul's expectations were because they were clearly stated, and he read them in the presence of everybody. I'm pretty sure Timothy knew what the expectations were anyway, but this clarifies it. There's no question. But it serves another purpose. It also was read out loud to the people in the church as well, and that made it clear to the congregation, to the members of the church there at Ephesus, what Timothy's role was and why Paul sent him there. So it dispelled any, oh, you're just deciding to do this type of nonsense. It was, oh, that's what you were instructed to do and you're doing your job. Okay. And it kind of changes the perspective a little bit as we read through uh, Paul's letters to Timothy, both the first one and the second one, but there's a little bit different background on the two. So that kind of sets the background. There was an issue, of course, at Ephesus that Timothy was sent there to deal with, and that was this idea of false teaching. Now, the backgrounds of this false teaching were kind of multifaceted. But in large part, it's centered around the Judaizers. Now, you may have, if you've listened to these podcasts, you may have heard me use that term before. But it was those that came in and started mixing the gospel with Jewish tradition. Although it wasn't always Jewish tradition, there were other pagan thoughts that would work their way in as well. But in this case, there seems to be a heavy, heavy influence of Jewish traditionalists coming in. That you know, If you're going to follow Christ, you, you can follow Christ, but you have to do these Jewish things first. Or if you're really going to follow Christ, then it, you have to start with Judaism. And that's not what the gospel teaches. It's, it's not about works. It's not about the law and grace. It's about grace. And so Paul begins to confront some of those issues through Timothy in this text. So we'll be unpacking that a little bit and looking at it from a few different perspectives to try to understand what's going on here, see how it applied in that church, in that day, in that time, but also how it may apply today, maybe in our churches, our time, our lives. Thank you for joining me on this journey. Let's get into the text. As we look at 1 Timothy, the first chapter, we find in the first two verses the basically entirety of the salutation from Paul. Let's go ahead and look at these verses. It says, This letter is from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, appointed by the command of God, our Savior, and Christ Jesus, who gives us hope. I am writing to Timothy, my true son in the faith. May God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord give you grace, mercy, and peace. Now, who's he talking to? Is he saying to Timothy, look, you know, this is who I am and I'm writing to you and and may, may God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord give you grace, mercy, and peace? Well, yes, he's talking to Timothy, but as I pointed out, 
the type of letter this is, that was also a blessing that was being extended to the congregation. He wasn't just writing to Timothy. It was addressed to Timothy, but he's writing to Timothy and the church. And so that's what's going on here. When Paul talks about Timothy being his true son in the faith, well, through Acts and, and other passages, we we find that Timothy has a legacy of faith going through his mother and his grandmother that Paul probably was not, in fact, most likely was not the individual that led Timothy to faith. So when he talks about Timothy being his true son in the faith, he doesn't mean that he was the one who shared the gospel with him and led him to to faith in Christ, but instead he is one who has served beside him and been a father figure in the faith, has discipled him in the faith. So that Timothy's relation to Paul in the way they relate to each other is as a, a son to his father. And Paul's also saying that Paul views Timothy as a son. That, uh, that frames the relationship a bit for Paul and Timothy, but it also clarifies some things to the church at Ephesus about the validity of Timothy's presence there and of Paul's expectations as well. So even in those two verses, Paul begins laying out quite a bit of important stuff for both Timothy and the church at Ephesus. Now, as we continue on into the third verse, Paul begins to address this issue of false teachers, which was in large part why he had sent Timothy to Ephesus to begin with. So let's look at what he has to say, starting in verse 3. When I left for Macedonia, I urged you to, I urged you to stay in Ephesus and to stop those whose teaching is contrary to the truth. Don't let them waste their time in endless discussion of myths and in spiritual pedigrees. These things only lead to meaningless speculations, which don't help people live a life of faith in God. Now, I really like the way the New Living Translation renders that passage here. Uh, you may be familiar with it in other translations, and that's fine. It reads a little bit different. It talks about genealogies and things of that nature. But the New Living really, I think, does a good job of getting the meaning across here. Number one, he lays out the problem. There are those that are teaching stuff that is contrary to the truth. What is the truth? We live in what is functionally a postmodern world. We live in a world where truth is considered to be relative, where, well, that, that can be true for you, but that's not truth to me. The only problem with that is it's absolute nonsense. Truth is truth. Truth is defined by God, by his nature and character. Right and wrong is determined by the nature and character of God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means Jesus is the only way to salvation, but it also means that if we want to know what truth is, we need to know Jesus, because otherwise we are still captive 
to a lie that is meant to deceive us and blind us to reality. And that's not a good place to be. But Jesus has come pulling back that veil, revealing the truth. He is the truth. So if you want a definition of truth, Jesus. Genuine truth is found in Christ. And these folks had come along to the church at Ephesus, and they were teaching something contrary to the truth. And Paul simply, and again, addressed to Timothy, but the church gets to hear that this is the charge to Timothy, how they are supposed to be dealt with. Don't let them waste their time on endless discussion of myths and spiritual pedigrees. You see, the Jews were really big into their their heritage, their ancestry, and what that meant for who they were spiritually. Because if you had a, a famous rabbi or a great leader in Israel's history that was up your family tree, somehow that meant you were more significant. Now, that doesn't really hold water in reality. As the old expression goes, sometimes the apple falls far from the tree. Just because someone's ancestor was something doesn't mean that that individual falls into the same line, uh, carries the same significance or the same faithfulness to God. We can't stake our relationship on God on previous generations. It just won't work. Uh, here, here's an example for you. Um, some of my family and in, in retirement years and whatnot has gotten into studying genealogy, figuring out what our family history is, where we where we come from. I've got some interesting characters in my family tree. Uh, the, the General Tecumseh, uh, not Tecumseh Sherman, the Shawnee general. He actually wasn't a chief, his brother was, but uh, is is in my family tree. Um, there are some kings, some of the Plantagenets in England are up my family tree. Um, my brother insists that one of our ancestors, uh, from our Viking heritage is listed in Beowulf. In fact, the genealogy for that king listed in Beowulf claims that he and shows that he is a descendant of Odin. So I guess if you want to run that route, I could, holding on to myth, claim to be a descendant of Odin. Now, there are some problems with that, like, mm, let's see, Odin's not real. Uh, so that, that could be a problem there. It's based on an epic uh, tale, poem, epic poem uh, from ages ago, which is a story not the truth. You see, we can get in the all sorts of stuff and go, no, I'm significant because, but it's just not reality. It becomes a fantasy that we waste time on. And we can spend that time in endless discussions of myths and spiritual pedigrees. But where will that get us? Nowhere. And that's functionally what was happening in the church. Oh, they made it sound really religious and important, but it was the same nonsense. These things only lead to meaningless speculations. 
which don't help people live a life of faith in God. Because remember, our goal as believers in Christ is to serve him and to help others to know him. That's my kind of light paraphrase of go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all I have commanded. That's the point. That's the charge. That's the challenge. That's the marching orders. And when we get distracted by looking at these genealogies and figuring out that we have some spiritual significance because of some ancestor or some relation to something somewhere, and we start talking about myths, which are not reality, and we spend all of our efforts and energy there, then we've missed the point. We have become distracted from what God has called us to do which is to help people live a life of faith in God. As leaders in the church, if you hold a position of leadership, whether that is you are discipling someone up to being a Sunday school teacher, maybe a ministry staff member, whatever it is, if you hold that position of leadership in the life of your church, understand your job, your purpose there is to help people live a life of faith in God, not to distract them with stuff that's meaningless. Stay focused. The church at Ephesus was becoming profoundly unfocused. And so Paul had this in Timothy to help straighten that out. And that's what we see going on here. Now, as we continue on in verse 5, it says, The purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and genuine faith. So Paul's making it real clear there. The whole point of his instruction, when he teaches, here's the focus, that all believers be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a genuine faith. We stay rooted in our faith to God. We live out a life of clear conscience before God. And we let the love of God overflow from our lives from a pure heart that seeks to follow God. He goes on in six, but some people have missed this whole point. They have turned away from these things and they spend their time in meaningless discussions. They want to be known as teachers of the law of Moses, but they don't know what they're talking about, even though they speak so confidently. Now, Paul was an expert in the law of Moses. And so when he's saying, look, they speak so confidently, they want to be known as teachers of the law of Moses. But he makes the point, they don't know what they're talking about. And he's a guy that would know. And he's going to explain what he means by that. He says, we know that the law is good when used correctly. For the law is not intended for people who do what is right. It is for people who are lawless and rebellious, who are ungodly and sinful, who consider nothing sacred and defile what is holy, who kill their father or mother or commit other murders. The law is for people who are sexually immoral or who practice homosexuality or are slave traders, liars, promise breakers or who do anything else that contradicts the wholesome 
teaching that comes from the glorious good news entrusted to me by our blessed God. So what is Paul saying? Well, he lays out a lot of stuff there, doesn't he? Yeah. He says, look, the law has its purpose. What is the purpose of the law? Well, we know from other discussions in the New Testament, the purpose of the law is to convict us of sin. The purpose of the law is to show that we are sinners in need of a Savior. The purpose of the law was never to save. Even in the Old Testament, the purpose of the law was not salvation. It was to show us we were condemned so that we would turn to salvation. Now, in the Old Testament, that may have looked like just trusting that God had promised that he would provide a way of salvation, that he would provide the perfect sacrifice, but not knowing that that sacrifice would be Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, beaten for our sins, shedding his blood to atone for our sins on the cross. They may not have known that, but they placed their faith that God would provide a way. We have the benefit of history. We have the benefit of looking back to see what the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament prophecies was. That the law pointed to our need for a Savior. But that Jesus is God's grace bringing us salvation. So Paul says, hey, the law has its purpose. We know that the law is good when it's used correctly. When the law convicts us of our sin and drives us to that point of turning to God for salvation, then the law is good and it's used correctly. But if we start trying to find our righteousness, if we start trying to find our salvation in the law of Moses, we're using it wrong and we will fail every time because salvation isn't found in the law. It's found in grace through Christ. And so Paul tells us that the law, the law is for people who are lawless, rebellious, ungodly, sinful, consider nothing sacred, defile what is holy, kill their father, mother, commit other murders. The law is for people sexually immoral, people who practice homosexuality. And let me give you a little background on that. The words there that that translate as homosexuality mean homosexuality. I know there's a movement afoot to redefine those and everything, but hey, Scripture says it. You don't have to like what I say, but you got to live with what the Bible says. And Scripture says homosexuality is wrong. It says a lot of these other things are wrong, too. Uh, slave traders, liars, promise breakers, or who do anything else that contradicts the wholesome teaching that comes from the glorious good news entrusted to me by our blessed God. What's it mean? It means God calls us to a higher standard, and anything less than that standard is sin. And the law exists to point out our sin. To point at us and say guilty. It is in God's grace that we find that guilty verdict 
paid for by Christ, and we are declared free. We are declared right with God. It's an awesome promise, and it's a profound reality. Now, as Paul's talking about these people that have come in and and want to uh, show how great they are in the law, they want to be experts in the law, and he's saying they're using it wrong. They don't even get it. He now begins to explain from his own background and perspective a bit about those that want to be experts in the law. Here's what he says, starting in verse 12. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength to do this work. He considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve him, even though I used to blaspheme the name of Christ. In my insolence, I persecuted his people. But God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Oh, how generous and gracious our Lord was. He filled me with faith or with the faith and love that comes from Christ Jesus. Do you realize what Paul said there? What he said was God did not hold who he was against him. When God saved Paul, God forgave. It's interesting. I've come across people over the years that latch on to this idea of blasphemy and go, oh, blasphemy, that's the unpardonable sin. Let me explain to you how I how I understand blasphemy to work as being unforgivable. When we, with the entirety of our lives, take the things of God and try to make them worthless, when we render the sacrifice of Christ meaningless in our life by rejecting the gospel and persevering in that rejection until this life is over, then there is no forgiveness for us. That sin is, by definition, unpardonable because we rejected the pardon. Other than that, I don't see any part of a person's life that's beyond the reach of God. I don't see any point, anything a person has done, said, or thought at any point that renders them unreachable by God, that renders the grace of God out of their grasp if they will accept him. Turn to him. Scripture says, call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. So it's never too late to turn to him. There's never too much water under the bridge. There's never certain things you have said in the past that make it impossible for you to be made right with God. Hear what Paul says. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength to do his work. He considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve him, even though I used to blaspheme the name of Christ. In my insolence, my stubbornness, my arrogance, in my insolence, I persecuted his people. 
but God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. And so now Paul can proclaim, oh, how generous and gracious our Lord was. He filled me with the faith and the love that comes from Christ Jesus. And he goes on, this is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Yeah, he didn't come to save the righteous. He came to save sinners. So don't fall into the trap of thinking there's anything in your past, that there is anything in your life that renders you unreachable by God. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul goes on and says, and I am the worst of them all. You want to rack up creds as sinners? I'm at the top of the list. But it goes on in 16, but God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. All honor and glory to God forever and ever. He is the eternal king, the unseen one who never dies. He alone is God. Amen. Did Paul make his point? I think he did pretty clearly. It's not about where we've been. It's about who God is. It's not about what we've done. It's about what Christ did and what he desires to do in your life and in my life today. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that it's about the law or even wanting to be an expert in the law or anything else for that matter. Maybe in your life, it's not the law. Maybe in your life, it's something else. But what is it that's that, that distraction for you? What is it that's the sitting around discussing the myths and looking at, 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 at genealogies or whatever else you think gives you significance? Spiritual significance that isn't your relationship with Christ. That isn't living in his love, living a life of obedience to him, living that life that, that helps others to live a life of faith in God. What is it? Because it's time to clear it out. Get it out of the way. Because it needs to truly be all about Jesus. Don't let the myriad of seemingly good things keep you from following Jesus. Now, as we move into verse 18, what we encounter is basically a call to action. Paul has gotten to the point in the letter where he is giving specific instruction to Timothy that it is time to act in regard to these false teachers. 
Now, sometimes there's a desire to not confront a situation. There's a desire to just, you know, try to speak louder or lay out the premise of your argument and let people choose. But Paul is pointing out to Timothy that, look, in the life of the church, this has to be dealt with. There comes a time when things are out of bounds and you've got to call them. And just to make it interesting, recall, this is the type of letter that these instructions to Timothy would have been read out loud to Timothy within the hearing of the congregation. So they would know, oh, this is what Paul, who's an authority of ours, is telling Timothy, who he sent to be in charge right now, to do with us. And it kind of dispelled any uh, confusion about what the task was or how things were going to play out. So, let's look at these verses. Starting in 18, it says, Timothy, my son, here are my instructions for you based on the prophetic words spoken about you earlier. Now, what words were those? Well, that would have been probably at his ordination with the laying on of hands that that there was some prophecy given over him, uh, maybe some reminders of the truth of God. Remember, not all prophecy is foretelling. A lot of it is forthtelling. That is, a lot of it is proclaiming the truth of God into the situation in which we find ourselves. And whatever the case may be, those were words that Paul was calling back to Timothy's memory to remind him of his grounding, to remind him that he does not stand alone, but he is there as a servant of Christ. He goes on and says, May they help you fight well in the Lord's battles. Cling to your faith in Christ and keep your conscience clear. If you're going to serve God, there are a couple things you're going to have to do. One, you got to cling to your faith in Christ. That's all you got. You can't cling to your accomplishments or your name or reputation or degrees or whatever. All you've got is Jesus. If you're going to serve in his kingdom, cling to him. And he doesn't just say that. Cling to your faith in Christ and keep your conscience clear. That is, act honestly before God, following Him. Have a clear conscience before God. Because if you know that you are following God, clinging to faith in Him, and acting in a clear conscience to what God has directed you to do, there's going to be plenty of people that are going to rip and tear at you. There are going to be plenty of people that disagree and will accuse you of all sorts of stuff in this life. But none of that matters. Because if you're doing it, because of your faith in Christ, if you're doing it to follow Him, and you are doing it with a clear conscience before Him, then they can say what they will, and they will. But it doesn't matter. Because the one whose opinion matters is Christ. Cling to your faith in Christ and keep your conscience clear. For some people have deliberately violated their consciences. They have deliberately gone against what they know to be right before God, is what he's saying. They have violated their consciousness, consciences, 
And as a result, their faith has been shipwrecked. Interesting choice of words from a guy that has been shipwrecked. Yeah, they violated their conscience, and as a result, their faith, it's shipwrecked. It's not going anywhere. They're stuck on the rocks. Now he's going to name names. In verse 20, he says, Hymenaeus and Alexander are two examples. I threw them out and handed them over to Satan so they might learn not to blaspheme God. What's he saying? He's saying he exercised church discipline with these two guys. That what they were saying was contrary to the truth of God. They were taking what was God's work and they were attributing it elsewhere. Or they were denying that it was God's work. They were speaking in a blasphemous manner about God. Either overtly or by action. Or both. And Paul said he had to deal with them. What's it mean? I threw them out and handed them over to Satan. It means that they were kicked out of the church, that the fellowship of the church was withdrawn from them, that if they were going to live contrary to the gospel, and they were going to teach contrary to the gospel, then they would have to live under the weight of that. That everyone wasn't going to pretend they were okay. But instead, they would be treated like they're not okay. Why? Why would they do that? Why would, in Paul's terms, they hand someone over to Satan? It's not for destruction. You see hints of it here, but you see it clearly elsewhere in Scripture. When this issue of church discipline, whether it's Jesus talking or or whether it's Paul talking... It all comes back to the idea that when you withdraw fellowship like that, when you set a person outside the body of believers, if you will, turn them over to Satan, it's so that their choice of living in rebellion to God can start to bear its fruit of rebellion in the hopes that that person will become broken enough in their spirit that they will look up. Think of the prodigal son. This Jewish kid that demanded his inheritance before his father ever died. In that tradition and in that world, when he said, Father, give me my inheritance, what he was essentially saying was, I wish you were dead because I want the money. And he goes off to a foreign land and he burns through all the money. And he's ultimately so broken that he gets a job slopping the hogs. And he is so hungry that he longs to be able to eat what he's feeding the pigs. Mind you, I mentioned Jewish kid. I'd encourage you to do a quick Google search on traditional Judaism and pigs. You're going to find those two don't mix. He's that broken. And scripture says that he came to his senses. I think what Paul is talking about here, about throwing them out and handing them over to Satan so that they might learn not to blaspheme God. It's not about punishment. It's about redemption. It's about letting a person feel the weight of their sin so that they will look up and come to their senses 
and understand there is one who loves them and wants to forgive them and wants to bring them in the right relationship. But they've got to look up. It's about a discipline that is redemptive. It's not about punishment. It's about correction. And Paul is very plainly in front of everyone at Ephesus by way of this letter, charging Timothy with that task. So it puts Timothy on notice. You got some hard stuff to do and you're going to have to face it. But it also tells the congregation you're going to be held accountable. And there is a cost for your rebellion against God puts everybody on notice. It's an uncomfortable position. See, Scripture doesn't always give us comfort. Sometimes Scripture gives us, uh, dare we call it, a divine discomfort because it convicts us and it calls us to something other than we are. Christ is calling us forward. Will we take that step? Or are we so entrenched in the things that we have placed our faith in that are other than Christ that we need to be put on notice? That we need to be warned? That we need to fear that our consciences have been ignored so much that our faith has become shipwrecked? And we might need to experience some discipline in the hope that we would reach a point of turning to God. I hope that doesn't describe you. Instead, let's focus on following Christ with all we are and all we have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we do thank you. We thank you for the sacrifice of Christ for our behalf. We thank you for the gospel, that saving message that brings life and purpose and peace into our lives. And Father, we ask that you would help us with clear conscience to cling to our faith in you and to live a life that glorifies you. Father, to live a life, Father, live a life that helps other people to live a life of faith in God. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.